Back in Genesis. Starting Genesis 6 today. Just verses 1 through 8, if you saw the email, titled, Rain is Coming. April asked me uh, the title this week of the sermon and what it was about. And when I told her, she asked me if I ever feel like I get enough credit for coming up with these clever titles. Um, Typically, I don't want them, but uh, rain, pun intended, is coming uh, this time of year. No. Hopefully you understand uh, the connection as we're entering the story of Noah and the Flood. The beginning of it anyway. Let me read Genesis 6, 1 through 8. And read along with me. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide a man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown, or reputation. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, uh, what a picture of your justice, Lord, Uh, even being executed through wrath um, toward the sinfulness and depravity of, of, of mankind. And also a picture of grace, that through one man, you would recreate the entire human race, a a new creation, Lord, and we get a picture of the gospel of what you're ultimately going to do through the sinless Son of God who will come to be with us. And as we see today, Lord, we're in need of him because our hearts, too, continually inclined to sin. And therefore, we, we, need, we need you to do something about that, Lord, because we're unable to do that on our own. So God, uh, if, 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 if we don't have circumcised hearts, I pray that you would circumcise those through the preaching of your word this morning and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. If we do, Lord, I pray that if there's anything in our life, God, that, that, that is hardened at this moment of, of ears to hear or eyes to see, Lord, God, that you would soften those so that we may respond to your word, respond to you, Lord. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. If Genesis 5 was pretty straightforward, the lineage of Seth anticipated one who would eventually be born. Uh, from the offspring of Eve, 
who would crush Satan, destroy his works. Well, I mean, we, we, we know that now, but there was one that was coming or anticipated at the end of Genesis 5. And if you remember, Lamech prophesied over his son Noah, saying, This is the one who will provide us rest. He will give us release from the curse. He will bring comfort to God's people. Reverse the curse of Adam's sin. If, if you were here, and if you recall, I, I said Lamech's prophecy over his son Noah, or prayer, whatever you want to call it, is, is partially true, because Noah was intended to be a second Adam. Like Adam, he failed to be an obedient son. We'll, as we get further into the story of Noah, we'll, we'll explore that. But for, day, for today's text... Genesis 1, sorry, Genesis 6, 1 through 8, it's probably one of the most difficult sections of the entire Bible. As, as I've studied it, uh, I've never seen more disagreements between commentators and scholars, pastors, Christians, than I have with this specific passage. In such cases, I've learned one valuable thing. I think it's valuable. When we arrive at a text like this, the best approach in interpreting it is to do so with humility. Now, if we face it, one of the hardest things for, or maybe if we admit it, one of the hardest things for Christians to do is to treat each other kindly when we come to a disagreement. And if you don't believe me, just wait till we get closer this year into the general elections. Anyway, while there are doctrines we cannot, we should not compromise on, which we would label as first-tier doctrines, which you can typically find in a church's statement of faith, those are the, the super important ones, they're... There, there, there are second, what we would define as second and third tier doctrines that we can disagree with and still remain in fellowship. I, I think the Apostle Paul addresses that issue about being dogmatic when he says, look, knowledge without love is useless. And I think the implication of that, what it means is when, when we disagree about something, especially in the Bible... How we treat one another speaks to a, a, a depth or a greater depth of our Christian faith than the position that we hold. It doesn't mean doctrines aren't important. They're very important. And as I stated last week in regard to church membership, one, we are Christians are a doctrinal people. And some doctrines are so important that you can't even be affirmed as a Christian if you don't affirm those orthodox teachings. And even as vital as those doctrines are, we still don't have any biblical warrant to be disrespectful toward those who disagree with us. Even with first-tier doctrines, we still do not have warrant to be disrespectful. And a, a consistency to refrain from bad manners when criticized, I think, is a great indicator of Christian maturity. For the one who's able to be disagreed with and still be charitable toward their opponent, 
is an aim, is our aim of Christian faith. Of course, with the... That might have been a little more dramatic than we needed because Genesis 6 isn't typically a passage that we quarrel over or we, we fight over, that we're rude over. I just thought it was a good time and worth mentioning that when we discuss the Bible, we should do so with humility. I should also say for the record, this is a passage at first glance that probably provides us with more fascination than it does with application. For that matter, I think it would be beneficial to remind you why we preach expositionally, or expositional. I'm going to add L-Y because it just sounds better to me. Which means when, when we preach expositionally, we do it by preaching chapter by chapter, passage by passage, and verse by verse. It doesn't mean we have to explain every word or verse, but the purpose of us preaching this way is to proclaim the word of God in its entirety. I can imagine if it were your first time in church, which it isn't for anyone here, I know all of you, but if it was, or if there was a visitor, and this was the passage I began reading, they might wonder what in the world they just walked into. And maybe how any of Genesis 6 is relevant for their life. It's, it's noted that one of the, the challenges of, of uh, preaching expositional is being able to find the application. It's being able to find the relevance for us in our life, especially in a passage like this. As Alistair Begg says, expository preaching is unfolding the text of Scripture in such a way that it makes contact with the listeners while exalting Christ and then confronting them with the need for action. That's the goal of expository preaching. I, I like that. I read a bunch of definitions. I like that definition. It's not just reading the text. It's, it's not just teaching the text. It's, it's presenting it in such a way that makes contact with your minds and with your hearts. Now, we need help from God to do that. But the Word of God in preaching is supposed to, as Beg says, confront you with the need for action. And someone prepares sermons on almost a weekly basis, I realize that when we do come to a text like this, or if you're just in your own private reading, devotional time, as interesting as a text like this may be, it may not appear, as you read through it, to be very practical. And if that's the case, then why do we do it? Why do we preach this way? One of the primary reasons, I would say the primary reason we do so is because the Bible says all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture, which means Genesis 6, this passage here, is just as divinely inspired as John 1 or John 3 
Leviticus 16 is just divinely aspired as Romans 9 or Romans 10 or Ephesians 5. And the Bible also says, not only is it all inspired, but all Scripture is useful. So not only does the Bible say that it's just all Scripture is divinely inspired by God, but even the genealogies that, that we grit our teeth as we're reading through, those two have purpose and are useful. I may not be able to convince you to love expository sermons over topical sermons, but I wanted to explain why we do what we do. And it's primarily because we're fully convinced that God is able to use every bit of his word to accomplish whatever good work he desires to do in us and in you. And so we preach the entire counsel of God's word and we do it by faith believing that he will act. Let me contradict myself for a second because I can't say, can say one thing about this passage that I do think bears much relevance and it's the condition of the human heart, which the text says, which the Bible says, is inclined to sin. Every single one of us is born with that condition. And therefore, we're in desperate need to be reborn, to be born again. We're in, we're in desperate, dire need of a new heart. And if we read the, the rest of Scripture, we, we see that that, that work of, of the rebirth, of receiving a new heart, is a spiritual work, and, and it is only a work that God is able to do. And we'll get to that point last. But because we've come to such a fun passage today, we should exposit the, the previous verses, and we'll start with, who are the sons of God? Excuse me, verses 1 and 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth, the land and daughters, I'm sorry, <laughs> when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as wives as they chose. So, so in, in verse 1, humanity's population, it's already beginning to take off, but now it really takes off and uh, verse 2 says, <laughs> the growth of humanity included a variety of attractive women. And, and as <laughs> I knew that was going to say, that was going to sound unusual to say out loud, but it actually does provide us with some context because it was the desirability of these women that drew the sons of God to them. As the text says, when, when they saw the daughters of men were attractive, they took them as their wives. So, so who were the sons of God? The, the, there, there's a few different main views held. I think there's two that I would say are the most feasible explanations. Uh, number one, 
the sons of God were angels. Number two, possibility B would be the sons of God were the lineage of Seth who married the wicked offspring of Cain that, that uh, began to populate from Genesis 4. So the sons of angels, uh, sorry, so the sons of God were angels or the sons of God for the lineage of Seth who married the offspring of Cain. Each, each are possible. Uh, I do believe the first answer that the sons of God were angels actually carries more weight than the sons of God were the lineage of Seth. And it actually kind of saddens me because I found out this week that Augustine and Luther uh, disagree with me. But, yeah, it's sad. They believe the sons of God were the lineage of Seth. Now, that, that could be the case. Maybe, maybe the sons of Seth, if you will, the, 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 the family tree of Seth, as they were populating the earth, they saw the daughters of Cain, and they thought they were pretty hot stuff. It wouldn't be unusual for a man to base a woman's worth solely by her appearance. Therefore, they married these wives without caring about the evil that came along as a package deal. Now, that doesn't mean every woman is evil, so please, okay, well, according to Genesis, every man and woman is evil, but you get the point. The, what Augustine or Luther or those who hold the position of the lineage of Seth or the sons of God are saying is, is that they married a specific group of women that they shouldn't have married. And so at that point, the earth got increasingly wicked from their offspring. That is definitely possible. But I think the term sons of God seems to be identifying beings other than the family tree of Seth. One of the main reasons I believe that is because how the term sons of God is used in the Old Testament. It's, it's, the terms used a total of six times, twice in Genesis 6 in our passage today, three times in Job and one in Dan in Aramaic, or Daniel in Aramaic. In Job 1.6, now there was a day when the, here's the term, sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. Job 2.1, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Job 38, 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And Daniel 3, he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So in, in these Old Testament references, it, it never refers to the sons of God as humans. It refers to some sort of angelic host or being. Secondly, the New Testament in 2 Peter and Jude, I think, implies that it was angels who committed uh, this, this, this grievous act in Genesis 6. 2 Peter 
1, starting in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. In Jude 6. Verses, well, verses 6 and 7. And the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. In both of these occurrences, the New Testament references angels sinning and being cast into hell to await judgment. And they reference angels leaving their proper dwelling as well as pinpointing the flood as a time marker for God's judgment. So, so due to that data, I, I, just, I find it hard to accept that the sons of God in Genesis 6 are anyone other than the angelic, the angelic beings who rebelled against God. This, this is where I think we find a bit of personal application. Because Moses describes the allurement of the angels the same way he described Eve being tempted in the garden. He says, the sons of God saw them and they were desirable. Which means they were enticed by the daughters of men the same way Eve was enticed by the forbidden fruit. And I think Moses is using the words intentionally so that we can note, so we can know how sin is packaged up. Because the deception of sin attempts to, to get us to think that, that sin is just some heinous crime that, that we would never dare to partake in. But in reality, the lure of sin actually appears so desirable that we easily become convinced that we can never be content without it. And when that happens, when we take the bait, that's all we can focus on. I'm not going to go into any specific examples, but I think a lot of us know what it's like to dwell on sin and to just let it build real estate in our minds and in our hearts. So the application is that we must be on guard from allowing temptations, those temptations to dwell in places that they don't belong. So, so in other words, if something forbidden, if something you know is sin, is enticing you, don't let it take up real estate in your mind. Stop thinking about it. Make a commitment to say no. Move on. I mean, we, it's, 
It's not so radical because when, when Jesus enters into the Gospels, what does he say about temptation? If your hand is going to cause you to sin, remove it, chop it off. If your eye is going to cause you to sin, pluck it out. We must become radical, if you will, about how we treat sin in our lives. And one of them is, is to say to the temptation, there's no vacancy. have to be aware that, that when we continually fantasize about sin, we will find that it is only a matter of time before we begin committing the actual act. I don't know if any of you are psychology buffs, but if you study criminals who, who committed some of the most heinous crimes we can possibly fathom, and you just ask them, how did, it, how did you get to this point? It always began with them just fantasizing about it, thinking about it, and eventually that just wasn't satisfying enough where they had to commit the actual act. You see, our, our minds can, can only romanticize an experience for so long before it's no longer fulfilling and we crave the actual experience itself. And at that point, well, at that point, sin's got you. So if you see something desirable that you know you're not supposed to have, let it alone. Don't let it take up any real estate. Point two, there's rain in the forecast. Verse three, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore, to children, bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Let's start with verse 4. Who are the Nephilim? I would suggest that they're either the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men in verse 2, or they are a unique race who lived during those times that the readers would have been able to identify. And personally, I hold to that. I hold to the latter. Now, I should say for the record that I, my position is influenced by one of my Old Testament professors, Dr. Gentry, who argues that Moses is, is right here, is just making a statement about a specific people group who lived during the time that the sons of God married the daughters of men, which means basically that the Nephilim are just a marker of this pre-flood post-flood timeline. Now, there's, there's, there's plenty of people who think that the Nephilim are the wicked offspring born from this unholy union, and I'm completely fine with that, that, that you can absolutely read that from the text. You can read either. E either way, 
I think we can agree that the all who inhabit the earth are going to face a cataclysmic destruction due to their Godward rebellion and the evil intentions of their heart. What, what we have in Genesis 6 is it's a society who <laughs> has disregarded the commands and the design of God. Humanity's entire population has, has cast off its cords and decided that what they want most is to live a lifestyle that doesn't acknowledge God as their creator nor his mandates and design as their governing instructions. Try to imagine that, if you will. What would that look like? What would a world look like if the population and, it, and societies across the world just completely disregarded the word of God? What, what would be the consequences of a society who simply just rejected the creation mandates of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. An entire, and just think, an entire population who rejects the institution of marriage and instead lives in constant sexual promiscuity. Who discards the blessings and the mandates to have babies who refuses to acknowledge that God designed them male and female, who are barbaric toward one another because they disregard that every human was made in the image of God, what would a society look like if that were the case? I'm leading my witness because I, I, would, I would suggest that it would resemble something like our current situation. And, 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 and what we have normalized as a society, the Bible tells us, was the causation for God's decision to destroy the entire human race. I mean, think about it. <laughs> this isn't about eating pork getting tattoos, nothing that's written in Leviticus and Exodus. The only law that the human race had at this point in the history of mankind were the creation mandates. That's it. I don't even know if you need to read the news, but I think we live in a society that mirrors that. So, if we go back to verse 3 and try to figure out God's judgment here, again, we, that shouldn't label the sermon, we have two options. Because again, I think there's two options, is Will the, light, will the length of life be shortened to 120 years? Or will man 
Is man going to be given a grace period to repent before God bestows his wrath upon the earth? Some think by removing his spirit in the span of 120 years, it means he's going to shorten the lifespan of humans. I mean, if we read the genealogy in Genesis 5, these dudes are living past 900 years. I think it makes sense. Others, including myself, think God is referring to the time span that people have to repent. I'm sorry. Referring to the time span that people have, that they're being given to repent and call upon the name of the Lord. So, so in other words, Noah finds favor with God in the New Testament, as we read from Second Peter. The New Testament refers to Noah as a herald, a preacher of righteousness, right? He's chosen by God. To be his agent, to call the wickedness that's taking place on the earth, to call them to repent. He he was chosen to proclaim that there is one way, just one way to escape the looming wrath of God. And this, this period is a grace period in which God gave an opportunity for mankind to turn from their wickedness. None of them. None of them chose to do so. I, I think the Bible, I think it explains why in verse 5. Why didn't they repent? Why didn't they call upon the name of the Lord? Because their thoughts and their hearts were always inclined to do evil. But Noah, Noah found favor from God. Verse 8, and from this one man, just one man, God is going to recreate the earth and replace its inhabitants. And so therefore, verse 3 is a, is a declaration of God's judgment that the Lord who gave the breath of life to his creation through his spirit is now going to remove his spirit and flood the entire earth, which, which means the same spirit who hovered over the chaotic waters in Genesis 1 is about to hover over the chaotic waters once again. God's heart is grieved. We don't have time to go into that. But the scriptures do say that God does not even delight in the death of the wicked. While this story, not judgment, while this story is very fascinating and it explains how angels rebelled against God and became demons who are awaiting final judgment, we should note that Moses, he, he doesn't say that the angels are at fault for the increasing sins and wickedness on the earth. He doesn't say the angels are at fault for the coming judgment of God that will flood the entire earth. The emphasis is on the sinfulness of the human race. That's the emphasis. The problem that needs addressed is the condition of the human heart. 
it's yeah it's maybe i don't know maybe it's better we don't have any first timers today because it's probably a first it's a it's a hard sermon to sit down and it's it's literally well it's it's not fire and brimstone that's the next judgment this one's flood but it's literally god's judgment throughout this whole sermon but 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 verse 8 right but noah found favor with god it, it, it tells it. He found grace with God. It tells us not, not to focus on the judgment, not to focus on, on so much on what's going to happen. Focus on the grace that God provides so that judgment doesn't happen. And, 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 and sometimes it's good to just study the Word of God, to go through a passage and see that sin is not a joke before God. And we know it's not a joke before God because in order for sin to be removed from us, the Son of God had to enter into human form in order to die for our sins. Sin is serious in the eyes of God. It's good for us to remember that. And and, and while we may not find comfort in the fire and brimstone, and pray that we find the comfort and the grace of God that makes a way for us not to have to face that reality. Final point, the heart of the issue. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. But Noah, well, and the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled, so the Lord said, I'm going to wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. But Noah found favor. According to the Bible, according to the Scriptures, to the Word of God, there's no escaping the fact that, that every heart, all the hearts of men and women are inherently sinful We're born this way. It's somewhat ironic because so many people are taking a chance on eternity by believing that God's going to approve them on the basis of the intentions of their heart. And in other words, they believe, okay, well, I don't believe in that Jesus character, but let's just say if God is real then he's going to give me a pass because deep down inside, he knows what I'm really like and he knows my intentions were pure. But here's what the Bible says about the intentions of our heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. That's a problem. Who can understand it? The heart is filled with destruction. There's none righteous, none who seek God. Why? Why? Why are there none who are righteous? None who seek God. I have Genesis 8 up there. That's not a typo. Because after the flood, the intentions of man's heart is still evil and evil from his youth. You see, each one of us, (laughs) we're born with a heart that has a propensity to rebel against God. None of us, none none of us should go into eternity with expectations that God's going to give us a pass because we really meant well.
I want to say something pastoral. Not that preaching isn't. That was weird. Because I realized something while meditating through this passage earlier in the week. And, and that is that I personally may be more desensitized to what the Bible has to say about the human heart than I should be. Because while we may not have any first timers today, someone here may not be as aware of how the Bible describes the intentions of our heart and our thoughts and every single inclination we have outside of Christ is evil. And so I thought to myself, no matter if it's true and the Bible says it, it may actually come off as quite offensive. <clears throat> I was reminded of a man who used to, used to come and hear me preach in Kentucky. One day after worship, he sat down to talk with me. He wanted counsel. And he went on about the difficulties throughout his life. And, and he had a difficult life. And, and eventually, the conversation led into the sinful lifestyle that he, he refused to repent from. He wouldn't even acknowledge it as sin. As we just walked through the Word of God and, and, and clearly demonstrated it to him to show him, yes, God calls this sin. He didn't want to repent. So we went back and forth for a while, and then I just finally said, well, look, if you're not going to listen to me, like, what do you want me to do? How can I help you? Like, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, I need you to tell me I'm a good person. And I responded, you're not. None of us are. I think you can probably piece together how the rest of the conversation went. But for the record, I probably could have used a bit more tact. I mean, I said it just like that, and I said it immediately. And I wasn't trying to offend him. I was just trying to communicate what the Scriptures teach about humans being inherently sinful people and that none of us are born good. We're all born, Genesis 6, with the inclination to sin. All of us. Even, even on this side of being born again, we're still fighting and wrestling with our flesh. None of us are good. None of us are healthy. All of us are in need of a physician. And I'm certain in Luke 5, that's why Jesus says, I, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. born this way and that that leaves us in a quite a predicament because if we take God at his word that we're all sick and told that, that every single one of us begins life with a heart condition that is that is set on doing evil and, and to our despair <laughs> as Jeremiah 17 says it's beyond cure there is no earthly treatment There's no earthly treatment, right? Our hearts, they cannot be cured by anything this earth has to provide, but they can be cured and healed with a divine intervention. And when it comes to mankind's greatest issue, humanity's greatest issue, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. 
it's, it's always the heart issue. This is what Jesus is preaching about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's what the entire scriptures are pointing to. Your heart, your heart is hardened. Your heart must be circumcised. Remove the heart of stone. You need a heart of flesh. And, and it's, it's the reason why, why people say they can believe. They believe in Jesus, but in actuality, they have no inward transformation that's being expressed through obedient love. Because even though they believe, I agree they believe that he died and rose again, they still haven't had a transformation of their heart. So even though they claim to be a Christian, they'll never have any evidence that they actually are. Their, 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 their obedience is not moved by their affection for Christ. Well, why not? Well, because they still have a hardened heart. But, but then on the other hand, on the flip side of the coin, you have some people that appear to be very religious. And yet they don't do any of their good works out of affection for Jesus. And why not? Because just like the first group, their hearts are still hardened. And so the only remedy is with, with, with humans that are born with a heart inclined to rebel is that we would be reborn and that the heart of stone would be replaced with the heart of flesh. Is the prophet Ezekiel proclaimed a word from the Lord and says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will, here it is, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you. Well, look at that. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Notice in Ezekiel, who's the one doing all the work? That's in first person singular. I will, I will, I will. God does this work in us and only God can remove that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. That's the rebirth. That's what the Spirit came to do. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. How do you love thee? Because God gave me a new heart. And the heart that was inclined to love sin is now a heart, and I don't even know what happened, is inclined to love the Lord my God. It's the, it's the same grace that Noah finds in verse 8. Now, Noah didn't find salvation in the ark because he was righteous. He found favor with God because God chose to be gracious toward him. And the same is true with us. In Christ, in Christ we find favor from God by escaping his coming judgment. We don't escape wrath because we deserve it. We receive mercy because Christ received our sentence. Do you realize that? The wages of sin is death, and in love, Christ was pierced for our transgressions, and by his wounds we are healed. The cross of Christ is where those who have faith in Christ 
believe that he was executed for us. You realize we deserve the flood. Do you realize that every single one of us, we're not different than the people in that time frame. We deserve it just as well. And here we are. Not because we deserve life, but because God graciously chose to adopt us as sons by sending his son to die for us, to redeem us. And, 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 and I love Ezekiel 6 because in Genesis 6, God says, I'm going to remove my spirit who gives the breath of life. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I'm going to place my spirit in you. I'm not just going to give you life on this earth. I'm going to give you eternal life. And there's a plea here. There, there's an there, application to be a herald, a preacher of righteousness, just, just like the times of Noah, because our society is also under a grace period. This world is under a period of grace, and I don't know how long the length is, but today is the word of God says, today is the day of salvation for his reign is coming and there will be no justification for those who refuse to enter the ark through Christ. That's a metaphor. The point is, there's only one way to escape God's judgment and that is to be justified by faith. Faith in the man who died on the middle cross and was raised on the third day. Seek him while he can be found. Heavenly Father, God, um, there really is nothing more that, 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 that carries more eternal weight than, than finding the way, the, the path, the the road, the, the truth and the life, Lord, that, that is able to provide grace and mercy so that we may avoid the looming wrath, the coming judgment, God. And we thank you because of that. Lord, you're, you're not. The, it's been said that wrath is your attribute, but, but, but Wrath is not an attribute of you. Justice is an attribute of you. And wrath is a consequence of your justice because you cannot let sin go unpunished. And if you could, you would not be a just God. You are a God of love. And you show us that on the cross of Christ. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, God, I pray that in adoration and thankfulness, we just cut out caring about the possessions that we hope for you to bless us with at least for 24 hours and just consider the mercy that we receive at the cross of Jesus Christ. Just find joy that today is the day of our salvation and we, we are part of that because you have removed the heart of stone that was inclined to do evil. And you've replaced it with a heart of flesh. This is a work that is done by you. And we thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen.